there, nerdlings. This is Ash. And this is Matt. And you're listening to Crime Time Nerds, a sister podcast, which is now a member of the Spilled Potion Independent Arts Collective. You can check out all the awesome things the collective is up to, as well as the other fantastically nerdy podcasts that we've partnered up with over at SpilledPotion.com. And now, nerdlings, let's grab our flashlights and join us as we venture down into the dark world of true crime together. Welcome, nerdlings, to our second part of the Finley Creek Jane Doe case. In today's episode, Ash and I will be doing a deep dive into the Finley Creek case with the folks who've been working on finding this Jane Doe's identity for the last couple of years. We just want to thank the Finley Creek Jane Doe Task Force for taking the time to chat with us and discuss Finley Creek's case further. It's genuinely been such a pleasure to work with these amazing folks, and we have learned so much about what each and every one of us can do to help cold cases such as this one. Exactly. And so to begin our episode, we're going to take a few minutes and have each member of the task force introduce themselves and how they ended up finding themselves joining this amazing group of volunteers in the search for giving the Finley Creek Jane Doe back her name. Um, my name is Kathy Duncan Casper. I live in a little town called Wallowa, Oregon. I'm about 30 miles or so away from where our Jane Doe has been found. I stumbled onto uh, this cold case through Facebook, thanks to Mel and Jason's efforts to get social media preference. It was well after all of a lot of their hard work that I came into the picture, just wanting to help identify this young lady and her unborn fetus. Yeah. Um, I'm a certified insurance counselor. I retired after 22 years of being in the insurance business and Mel and I work for the same state of Oregon. And so uh, it's just been a lot of fun getting to know her and to do research and do assignments as uh, they come up that I can be helpful with. That's amazing. That's amazing that you've dedicated your retirement to this too. (laughs) And I'm sure that she would appreciate that. Yes. Well, I just can't believe we have a missing person in Eastern Oregon. I grew up, I was born and raised in Eastern Oregon. And I I was so young when this happened. I just, it just blows me away that I never knew anything about it. We come from a rural area too. And it's always heartbreaking when you hear about cases Mm -hmm. that you never knew about. And you're just like, wow. Yeah. It hits you. Absolutely. Yep. Yep. And I can go next. Uh, This is Mel. Uh, My full name with all the letters in it is uh, Melinda Jetterberg. It's a mouthful, but yeah, I do go by Mel. And I was born and raised in LaGrande, which is in Union County. And I'm about 20-ish miles from the grave site. I've gone and visited there several times. And I was about four years old when these remains were found. And so I Oh my gosh, I've been into like reading true crime books since I was a teenager. I actually did earn a degree in criminal justice and another in criminology and my master's is in information science. So I feel like my education has led me to be this true crime research nerd and I love it. I love it. So (laughs) (laughs) that's one of the things I liked about your podcast too, was the whole crime time nerds thing. I'm like, yes, these are my people. Let's go. (laughs) (laughs) That's Ash and I right there. (laughs) And this is how nerdy it is as I was sitting on a Friday night (laughs) 
after hearing about the Doe Network. And I'm like, I've never checked out the Doe Network. Let's go check this out. And uh, I'm like, okay, of course I had to put Union County in there, not expecting to find anything. And right. like, like Kathy, I was completely shocked that we had mm-hmm. a Doe in Union County. I, I could not believe it. And I'm like, how did I never hear about this? I was born and raised here too. So yeah. I uh, started texting my family and was like, did you hear about this? Because my parents were in their 20s when this happened. And my dad's like, well, yeah, I do remember hearing about that. So then my whole family got online and started digging up information. And they actually found Jason's Crime Watchers post. I saw that. Yeah. So (laughs) I was like, okay, cool. And so read through there. And I'm like, you know, this could really benefit from somebody who lives here. And it's amazing. So I, yeah, so I created a Facebook page and almost immediately after I published it, Jason reached out and he's like, I would love to get with the admin of this page. Who is it? (laughs) (laughs) So we started talking and then we had other people like Kathy reach out and be like, I'd love to be part of this group. Mm -hmm. And yeah, it just kind of rolled forward from there. That's amazing. It's crazy how a chain reaction like that happens and mm-hmm. it just sets everything in motion. It's like meant to be. Yep. Yeah, definitely. Absolutely. Yeah. And I'll, and I'll go next, I guess. Uh, my name is Jason Futch. I have been researching uh, missing unidentified and cold case homicide investigations since 2010. It's about over a decade now. And <laughs> one of my first cases that I helped solve was the 1994 case of the Lake City John Doe. Oh, wow. Uh, who was eventually identified as Fred Paul Laster. But one of the cool things about that was not only did it result in his identification, but there was also a prosecution as well. That's amazing. Uh, which I did not expect whatsoever. It was an added bonus. Mm-hmm. And I connected with his family and we became good friends. So with that being said, uh, I lived in Oregon in 2018 uh, in Portland when I came across this case. In fact, it was uh, somebody from Web Sleuths uh, who recommended this case to me because I was looking for another case to work on. And I decided to look into it. And there was absolutely nothing I could find about this case on the internet. Yeah, There was a link on Doe Network. There was a NamUs profile. All it said was that there was a woman buried in the hills with an infant or with a baby that was either full term or close to it. And I reached out to Dr. Vance at the medical examiner's office. And she at first did not necessarily trust me with the information. So <laughs> uh, I had to kind of start getting the stuff myself. And I reached out to Eastern Oregon University to get the newspaper clippings and I got that and I posted them online. And then Dr. Vance realized I was a little serious about this, but she still didn't want to entrust me with more information. And that's when I saw that this page had been created, the Fenley Creek Jane Doe Facebook page. And I reached out to Mel and well, here we are now. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Wow. That's awesome. It's amazing. I didn't realize that you had helped solve another cold case. That is, did. that is bravo. That's fantastic. I also have a missing persons recovery as well, which I'll talk about later. Yes, please do. It's amazing. It just shows to everyday people, you know, any single one of us can do something to help these cases. Mm-hmm. It really does show. It doesn't matter. You don't have to be a police officer to help mm-hmm. research a cold case or to get more attention to it. Primarily, Crime Time Nerds does focus mostly on unsolved cases. Mm-hmm. And lately, we've been doing an ongoing series on Jane and John Doe's that mm-hmm. um, it's just kind of like a, a passion project for the two of us. Sure. And it is 
very hard to, you know, we were talking about this before we got recording, but it is very hard to find information on a lot of these cases. Like you said, mm-hmm. a lot of times, you know, thankfully we've got sites like Name Us and the Jane and the Doe Network. Those are kind of the two big ones, but the information is still very spotty at best because, you know, it's a lot of it's volunteer based. Yeah. So mm-hmm. exactly. Yeah. So the more that people can help contribute, whether it's doing research or digging through archives and help submitting, the more that these cases have a chance of getting solved, mm-hmm. getting folks like you together and working a case full on right from start. Yeah. Is amazing. So oh, yeah. We applaud you guys. <laughs> Thank you. I'll do my little intro too. I'm just putting myself last here, which is fine. <laughs> <laughs> Never forgotten though. Never forgotten. I'm, I'm here solely in the capacity of being the forensic artist, but I am Anthony Redgrave. I am the lead forensic genealogist and uh, co-founder of Redgrave Research Forensic Services. Together with uh, me and my partner and our team and our previous endeavors, we've solved over two dozen cases of John and Jane wow. and unsolved homicides using forensic genetic genealogy. Uh, During the process of pioneering this field and learning it as we go, I also picked up forensic art as a skill. Um, I I had worked with Jason previously on a unidentified decedent case that we're still working on trying to get him identified, but I did the forensic art for him. He remembered my work and liked it. So he asked me if I would be willing to do the forensic art for Finley Creek. So, her art was really challenging because the photographs are not great. So I'm very glad that I could contribute that. But, you know, I, I really feel that everyone matters and anyone that I can do anything to contribute some small way that they might have a chance of getting identified, I'll do that. If they don't have DNA, I'll do art. If they don't have any photos of their remains, I will see if they have DNA. If they have neither of those things, I'll just get the word out and see if there's anything in reserve. I'll just- um, It's amazing. I'll go where I'm needed and everyone matters. And I will absolutely do whatever it takes wherever I'm needed. That's amazing. That is literally our motto. Oh, um, my background. Sorry, I didn't didn't think (laughs) that. My educational background is in instructional design, and I'm currently in a doctoral program. That's amazing. (laughs) So I'm, I'm in a doctoral program for educational leadership right now. I'm actually currently running and uh, further developing a online training course for teaching forensic genetic genealogy. It started out being just for law enforcement, but I've opened it up to forensics adjacent fields and other people who are who just take to it really well and want to learn how. We have an internship program for people who want to work on active cases for experience because really all we have to speak for ourselves when we go to departments and try to get cases to work on is our previous experience. And mm-hmm. in order to get experience, you need those cases. So we're kind of helping to shepherd people into the field in the most responsible and high caliber way possible. So that's what I do for my day job. And the forensic art is really supplemental to that and a tool that we use for identification. I've done a lot of things and worn many hats. Uh, I, I have a background in fine arts as well. And combining that with the forensics field was something that happened much later when I was when I was doing art for a living, I was highly disinterested in doing anything photorealistic. So this is a strange turn for me. <laughs> um, but the face is already there. I'm just helping it come out. 
That's amazing. I used to be a, or I'm not used to be, I still do um, portrait work mm. and I know how tough it is and <laughs> what it's like to work with and photos. So completely understand. And I was the same way. I didn't like doing it when I was younger. And then now as an adult, I love doing them. So awesome. it's a lot. Yeah. <laughs> it's a lot of work. So, and your work is beautiful. You really did a beautiful job. So thank you so much. I wear so many hats. I forget which ones <laughs> they are sometimes. So sorry. <laughs> no, no, that's me. I want to, I'm like that too. So I completely get it. <laughs> Yeah, it's amazing what you all have have put together. It really is. And, you know, like I said, it really shows just how any one of us can help in any way and get word out. And even if it's just sharing a post, mm -hmm. you are helping the cause. Yep. Um, some questions that we had for you all, Ash and I have put together, we, we had lots of them. We apologize now. <laughs> no, um, get us. <laughs> we were so excited that we we knew we already had a bunch after researching this case and getting as into it um, as we have. And so some quick questions that we had. What is some of the hurdles that your group has kind of faced in trying to piece together the original investigation? Because this is a 40 year old case. Well, for me, uh, one of the big issues that I've had personally was at the start of everything of me just learning about Finley Creek, as I just mentioned, was getting anything out of the out of law enforcement or even getting anything out of uh, the medical examiner's office. And yep. it took a lot of time to do that. But uh, I had to rely on my own tools, which was like newspaper research, uh, stuff like that, just at least to get something out there for others to see. I mean, even if it was just a little bit more information than what was already presented, some people may want more because then they could be like, hmm, that sounds familiar. Like, I think I saw a woman with one of those so-and-so, you know, whatever it was. Right. Uh, so I was trying to get as much information as possible. And one of the things that came out of it was the cord that was found at the gravesite. And that was something previously not mentioned at anywhere on uh, in yeah. regarding this investigation. Yep. So I think that definitely helped immensely. Yep. So that cord evidence, are they able to submit that for DNA, if you don't mind my asking, um, or is that still open? The thing is, the and kind of backtracking, when we were trying to get the police records in the first place, the thing I noticed is there are two different case numbers out there that have been published. Right. So I was like, okay, which one of these is right? And Dr. Vance was like, oh, either one will work. And no, either one did not work. So... Jason and I actually had to submit multiple requests. The first one, I'd never done one before. I was flying blind. Mm. And so I just submitted the case number and they're like, we don't have anything on that. And I'm like, <laughs> so we, we waited a couple months and I said, hey, uh, who in the group is interested in bombarding <laughs> Oregon State Police with records requests so we can get somebody to go look? Good for you. <laughs> So we did that and I wrote up this form with all these details in it saying, this is what I'm looking for. It could be this case <laughs> number. It could be this case number. And we sent those off and it worked. Jason and I each got a set, including photographs, finally. Wow. And what we discovered was at the very end of this report is that this case has been closed and all the evidence has been destroyed. Mm -hmm. So there is nothing, not even any remains. So that is accurate. I had seen that and I wasn't. Yeah. Bummer. And I actually have a funny supplemental story to that as well. Uh, the day that Mel got her records, 
I was actually in line uh, at Disneyland. I was in line over at Space Mountain with a group of high schoolers uh, because I had just taken them to Disneyland uh, uh, for a tour. And uh, I'm sitting in line at Space Mountain and I suddenly get bombarded with the OSP records that Mel sent, including the photographs. And every and all the kids were wondering, like, why why am I so excited? Why am I so happy right now? And I was like, it definitely, <laughs> oh, no. it, it, it definitely. I told him it's definitely not the ride. <laughs> I did not know that. That's so, so funny. Either. <laughs> that's funny. Well, but that's huge. I mean, that's a breakthrough in a case like this. It was. That is yeah, amazing. It Oftentimes, you know, we see it all the time in, in a lot of these old unsolved cases. There's nothing left yeah. at, at all. So yeah, absolutely. Evidence alone is never going to. It's it's so common to not have any left at this point that right. it's it, I don't think a lot of folks realize it's not just running something through DNA testing and, and getting it. You have Correct. to actually have something to, to test. So, yeah, definitely. Yeah. We were and super lucky that there were photographs in there, at least, because like Anthony said, even though they kind of sucked, <laughs> um, it was something. And yeah, he we'll, was able we'll get to take into exactly how we'll get into exactly how hard those photos were to work with later. I just <laughs> wanted to interject. Um, <laughs> I did some research because I constantly am researching everything and it's part of my dissertation. Um, case closure doesn't necessarily mean a case is solved and that's unfortunately the reality nationwide. Mm -hmm. um, so if you look at the National Institute of Justice's yearly reports, it'll actually say case closure does not mean a case is solved. It might mean that there was insufficient evidence to continue the case or it may have been closed for some other reason. That is unfortunately the case with many John and Jane Doe cases because they just don't have a lot of evidence to work with. Yeah. In this instance, um, we really tried everything we possibly could to find any sort of DNA evidence remaining. And I believe y'all can fill me in if, if I missed something, but I believe we found that there was none remaining or in reserve anywhere. We don't even necessarily know where her remains are. Right. Yeah. Right. Ugh, I saw that. So I think I read somewhere that you did have dental records, though. Is that correct? Yep. That is in the police report. Yep. Okay. I think I saw that you're kind of trying to sort through a bunch of missing persons cases to see if they the dental records match up. Is that something that's you kind of have to jump through hoops with? Like, is it really hard to get in touch with people to try to get those records or what we've only done so far is if we do have a match that does have dentals, what we've done is just refer it directly to Dr. Vance. And she gets with the forensic odontologist at the Oregon State Police Lab, and they take what they already have. Like, so if there's a case, like, for instance, a couple, Jamie Grissom was recently ruled out because those records were already available. Her sister, Star, is a huge advocate for her finding her. And so it was a matter of, kind of pestering Dr. Vance and you know when you have the sister of a missing person on the phone with you they that you know that holds a little weight mm -hmm. and so they just had they had those records available already so far I haven't had the opportunity uh to have to go physically seek out dental records we really only approach Dr. Vance with cases that have dentals on file already yeah. because right. there is nothing else yep that makes total sense. 
it's yeah, it's it's kind of crazy. You don't realize all of the the pieces to the cases like this, and that it's not just a quick, simple fix. Mm-hmm. It's not. I was wondering too. You know, this kind of ties into this is that of late, I've been seeing a lot more Jane and John Doe cases being solved each and every year. What are some of the tools that you all think are lending themselves to solving these these super old cases? What do you think is really aiding folks? Well, I definitely think the DNA. DNA. Yeah. Uh, having some DNA uh, is definitely uh, the best, in my opinion, is we have so many new avenues to check that DNA against that we didn't back in the 70s, 80s, 90s, you know. Absolutely. That's what I think. Yes. And we don't have any. <laughs> yeah. But it's also social media. It's, it's exactly what we're doing right now. It's right. pushing the forensic art out there. I have spread that picture mm-hmm. far and wide. Yeah. I talk to the newspaper. I'm, I'm all, constantly tagging Redgrave research and saying, here's the, here's the photo because mm-hmm. it's, it's what we have. It's, mm-hmm. I fully believe that it's getting this information in front of the right person. Who's going to be like, yeah. Oh my gosh, that looks like so and so. So absolutely, yeah. Um, specifically with uh, with forensic art, one thing that's really important to realize about forensic art is that on one hand, it serves really two purposes, um, and this is why it's important to not only have forensic art that's a good approximation of a person, but also to have something that's like satisfying to look at because people respond to faces. Yes. If they want to keep at it that'll keep the case fresh in their mind yes. and that will make people who don't recognize that person want to share it and people who might recognize that person look at it longer and say maybe mm-hmm. this looks like somebody i'm missing mm-hmm. um so that's really important um, another thing that's really contributed to a lot more cases getting solved recently is more agencies getting older cases entered into a national system for comparison which then um either gets compared automatically or the detective will do the work or um web sleuths um people on the internet who are true crime fans will go and do those comparisons themselves Mm -hmm. and submit those um a lot of things are getting solved that way Mm -hmm. um and also uh, forensic genetic genealogy like it's a slow process but it has a pretty darn high success rate and it's definitely um garnering a lot more interest in getting cold cases looked at again because the thing about forensic genetic genealogy is that the probability of getting a case solved by that method actually will go up over time if you capture that dna sequence while it's still usable before it degrades any further so because more people are submitting their dna into Mm -hmm. into the database and there's more uh diversity in genealogical genetic databases than there are in CODIS there is less than a 1% chance of a John or Jane Doe getting ID'd via CODIS. Mm-hmm. And it, I think we're averaging out at about 50% wow. of active cases uh, with forensic genetic genealogy getting solved. And that's that's not to say that there's some that aren't getting solved. That just means they're still being worked on. Right. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Wow. I didn't realize it was that high. That's amazing. Mm-hmm. Huge difference right there. So we we can expect to see probably in the next few years more and more of these cases getting solved. Mm-hmm. For sure. Amazing. Absolutely. And that's not even to mention the ones that aren't even being talked about because they're part of an active homicide investigation. Yep. There are plenty of John and Jane Doe's who are getting their cases solved, but they're not being announced because the homicide a- aspect of the case is still being worked on. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot mm-hmm. more going on in the background that you don't even know about. Yeah. Um, and it's really exciting. And yeah, you'll see more coming in, in the future and it'll it'll blow your mind. Woo! It'll continue to blow your mind. <laughs> <laughs> 
I just have a quick question too, kind of leaning on that. So in the case of um, Finley Creek Jane Doe, eventually, because hers is a homicide, if it's able to ever determine who she is, they might be able to actually then start to piece together what happened to her. At that point, does the investigation become an active homicide investigation again? I believe so, uh, because right now uh, the case is being handled through the medical examiner's office, but the thing about that is too is that once someone identifies this woman, then yes, I do believe it will become a homicide investigation, an active one. It's definitely an active homicide investigation, but the thing about it is that you can't really catch a perpetrator of a homicide if you don't know who the victim is. So that's a victimology is a huge component of solving a homicide case. If you don't know who was murdered, right. you're not really able to figure out who murdered them usually. Yeah, absolutely. That makes total sense. And, and something that I don't think folks always realize immediately is not just, mm-hmm. there's two pieces to it. Mm-hmm. So it's almost important to get it figured out first who she is in order to right. piece together what yeah. happened to her. And I think most of us in this group would be completely satisfied with just identifying <laughs> her at this point. That's yeah. the absolutely most important part. Yeah. And if potentially that could lead into further investigation, that's cool too. I'm I'm thinking it would right. be up to Union County to decide that they want to pursue that. Whoever's in office now at the time that it happens, because I know it's going to happen. Yeah, I well, feel it. I did too. <laughs> but yeah, it's it's. I know there's some administrative stuff that has to happen in order to deem a case open and active again. Okay. Um, so somebody, I don't know who would make the decision to do that, but. Um, if if it got enough attention and we shout loud enough, I think we could yep. get that to happen once she's mm-hmm. identified. Yeah, that's amazing. And hopefully with our platform, we can help yes. you all do that as well. And I mean, we've been talking to family members from different cases and people that have just started Facebook groups and already in a couple months, they have more and more tips coming. Yep. They have people reaching out for podcasts and just the more we can get that name out in the light, the more yeah. right. we can hope comes from it. Yep. That's so important. Definitely. I have to say, immediately when I saw her photo, I was just like hit by, it, it hit me strange. Like you read, she was 17 to 25 years old. But when you see the photo, it was like, all of a sudden, it's not just a number you're reading. It's like, oh my God, she was a baby. Yeah. Like you look at her photo and it's just like a gut punch. Mm-hmm. How did you all feel when Anthony first showed you? I started bawling because it was, I believe it was on my birthday, it, literally on my birthday this year. He, he said, he emailed us. Early. I did not know that was your birthday. Yes, it was. Yep. And we got this email early, early, early in the morning that said, you know what? Y'all <laughs> because I'm awesome. Here she is. Seriously. And I, I was a little bit delirious. I work really late into the night and I was probably really <laughs> sleep deprived when I sent you that. So yeah. <laughs> It was awesome. And we said, yes, you mm-hmm. want that. And I immediately, I'd been, we had just had an article come out on her. So I texted the, the uh, editor of the paper and said, she has a face. And then that was the headline a couple days later. I was, I was so emotional about it. Yeah. And I mean, and for me, uh, I had just moved back to Florida uh, about a month before that happened. And I was still trying to get used to the time zone change. And, uh, I was dead asleep at like, 
I think one or two o'clock in the morning, but Anthony sends the message at like four o'clock in the morning, you know, as Mel said, talking about how awesome he was and <laughs> stuff like that. And uh, I woke up at like seven o'clock, half awake, half asleep, see this photo. And I'm like, <laughs> holy shit, she's got a face. <laughs> like I, I was just so excited. Like it made my day. And then I just remember the next thing I did was email Dr. Vance. And I was like, Here's her photo. Now I'm ready for a meeting with you. <laughs> That's and I, I think I spoke on behalf of the entire group that that day. So I was like, yep. it's time for a meeting. Yep. We go, we need to make something happen now. And just so our listeners um, have a little backstory on who Dr. Vance is, would you mind sharing that with us? Yeah, sure. Absolutely. So uh, Dr. Nikki Vance, uh, she is the forensic uh, anthropologist for the state medical examiner's office in Oregon. Although uh, her duties encompass just more than bones and all that stuff. She also does forensic analysis, uh, blood splatter analysis, stuff like that. And so her work isn't just necessarily with the unidentified, but she has put a big emphasis in her mission to help solve these unidentified persons cases in Oregon Mm -hmm. to the point where when she did become the forensic anthropologist, she requested each county submit all of the remains that they had in their possession and send them to her office. She's got an entire closet yep. with nothing but bones in it. Wow. Yeah, like nothing but That's bones. That's amazing. Yeah, and I don't think any other like medical examiner's office in the United States handles right. unidentified person's investigations like Dr. Vance does, which I think is super unique. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's unreal. That's so dedicated to to the cause at that point. Absolutely. Something I want to add in about the way Dr. Vance is handling things is that I've personally seen a lot of this happen as new people come into office as chief medical examiner or um, new forensic anthropologists come on the scene. There's just um, a renewed excitement and motivation to get this work done. Um, Because when you're fresh on the scene, you have the most recent education about uh, how things work. And you're ready to innovate. And she absolutely just hit the ground running and is still doing that. And Mm -hmm. she's an exemplar to be followed in the way that she's handling things. And that means she's incredibly busy. Exactly. So she's a little (laughs) slow to respond to us sometimes, but that's because she's dealing with a lot. Yep. (laughs) Right. Absolutely. So do you think with Dr. Vance, her taking the all the evidence, do you think that's a way for her to cut out what happened to the Finley Creek Jane Doe with her remains getting cremated? Yeah, because one of the things she said to us as we were talking about seeing if we could track down Finley Creek Jane Doe's remains was, I just want them safe. Yeah. That was her concern, is that those remains were safe. So that, yeah, so that potentially, you know, something doesn't get thrown away in the meantime that she just missed getting her hands on, you know? Yeah. That's got to, I, I can't even imagine that feeling to know it's so close and then so far away. Yep. So is it common then, in, especially in these older cases, to have evidence of that nature remains just be thrown away? Is that it? Or, or it is not cremated? Com- it's not. No. She was not surprised, actually, at the time when she heard it. <laughs> uh. But we were talking about right before we got on this call how... It didn't get written into Oregon statute until later on to retain biological samples from unidentified persons, deceased persons. So in the 70s, it was 
pretty much however you're handling your business, handle your business that way. Because there are other counties that we were just talking about that kept stuff. Yeah. They kept it no matter what because they're like, this is a murder case. This is an unidentified person. Right. We're not do this. But unfortunately, it sounds like it was pretty common for them to be like, oh, oh well, we couldn't figure out who she was. We need the space. Yeah. Let's, yeah. you know, or whatever the reason might have been. Oh, so that hurts my heart. It does. It's painful. It really <laughs> is. Ugh. So kind of piggybacking on that, um, actually, Anthony, I think you were stated as saying, since you make the sketches, that the medical examiners don't take the best photos. Um, yeah. Do you think that they would benefit having like a professional photographer at some point, like in the future on board or? Well, here, here's the thing. Um, it really only has to be a forward facing photo. And uh, most current forensic anthropologists will know how to take a proper photo of the skull because that's what they do but not every coroner or medical examiner is a forensic anthropologist so, right um in the case of Finley Creek the photos that we had uh, I, I had a couple of strangely angled uh tables of a scattering of bones from strange angles mm-hmm. um and I I don't want to sound too crazy here but i'm not sure that there are many other people who would have even attempted to do a reconstruction of her because what i ended up having to do was the skull was upside down and at a sort of a three-quarter angle the mandible was off and i had to flip it and draw lines of perspective to get the proportion lines right talking about crazy art stuff here so you know when (laughs) when you're looking at a face straight on everything's even everything's symmetrical when you turn it things start looking funny yep um -hmm. so i had to draw perspective lines to correct it so it would be forward facing i basically had to do a new sketch of the skull itself to match those perspective lines and then draw on top of that instead of directly on the skull after that when i finished the image i had to use a 3d rotation tool of the reconstruction image that I'd made to match the angle of the actual skull on the table and make sure everything lined up correctly. Somehow I did that <laughs> and it turned out really great. And that's why I messaged everybody and I was like, I am awesome because I was really tired. I worked on it for probably about 12 hours straight and hadn't slept. It was about four in the morning. Um, right. <laughs> and, um, you know, I, I just, it's hard. I was, I'd been staring at these images for a while before I got started trying to figure out how I was going to to make an image because there was nothing else to work with. There was just that. There wasn't any DNA. And that's the best chance she has of getting ID'd is those dentals and and getting a good forensic image. So I I felt really responsible for just figuring that out. And I just uh, I guess I just bumblebee theoried it until I got it right. But that's (laughs) that's kind of uh downplaying my own skill set which I've spent a lifetime amassing and it all just sort of like came together at that moment and somehow it worked that's amazing (laughs) yeah thanks and I'll add to uh you know getting Anthony on board with this project was amazing uh because uh, he's been working with me on a project down in Florida the Forrest Doe case and he uh, did an amazing reconstruction on photographs and when i finally got the skull photographs and i was like 
there's only one person that I know that can probably do this. I mean, he was working with, uh, with Forrest's skull, which, uh, was I, for him probably not so easy, even though it was, uh, forward facing, there was a lot of like facial issues with Forrest, but like for this situation, I was like, if Anthony could do Forrest the way he did Forrest, I am certain that he could probably somehow figure out how to get Fenley Creek to look great. Yeah. How did you, um, Anthony, how did you feel when you, cause you were the first person to see her come to life. How did that affect you? Like what emotion do you remember feeling when you, you saw her face or her eyes? When I, um, when I'm working on a forensic image, I have a pretty good idea just by looking at a skull, what the face is going to look like at this point, just because I've, I've done it enough times now and I've, I've read enough and I've studied enough yeah. but, um, to actually see it come together. It's, it's more like, I know I'm doing it, but I'm also watching it happen. It's like they're showing themselves to me, not to get too spooky about it, but really that's what it feels like. And even as I was doing the initial sketch of the overlay of like trying to get her facial features right before I did any compositing, I was just like, oh my gosh, she's so pretty. Yeah. And it breaks my heart every time, you know, like what happened to this person? Like, how could someone destroy someone so beautiful and it doesn't matter if they're like technically beautiful or, or like traditionally so it's like this is a human being and i see this human being here yeah and this is who they were mm -hmm. and um i'm gonna i'm gonna get emotional about it now but mm -hmm. that's that's what it feels like so that feeling that y'all are having about when when you saw what i sent you i was seeing that happen in right. real time like that's yeah. basically what it feels like to me except i'm making it happen i'm the instrument by which it occurs right and it's uh it's a weird feeling. Like I know that I'm technically doing it and I know that I have the skill set to make it happen, but it still feels like I have a sense of awe about what's happening through me when I'm doing it. That right. makes total sense. It's like unburying her all over again. It's so sad when I saw her because it's someone has to miss her. Yeah. You know, that's the thing we find is that there's always somebody who's missing somebody out there. Right. And they're desperately looking for their person and here she is, or here he is, right. you know, there's another piece to this. That's even worse is that she was pregnant or had, it was killed with a small child. That is, I can't even imagine. I cannot imagine the grief that her family feels because mm -hmm. she does belong to somebody. She does. No. After all this time, whether they're still living or not, uh, another question, but she does. Yep. And it's very heartbreaking. Mm-hmm. And I think that's got to be something too, is when you see her come alive, it's like, yes. okay, maybe we're giving somebody a chance to look at her and say, that's my daughter or yeah. that's my sister or what have you, or a friend. Anything. Um, I've reached out. Um, I had friends that were actually in high school in the seventies that were going to school in La Grande, Oregon. And I reached immediately out as soon as we got her face and we had the okay to share that. I shot her picture right out to my friends. You know, did you go to school with this girl? Yeah. You know, pull out your annuals, take a look. Right. Let's see what we can do. And, and um, nothing. Ugh. Yeah. In getting involved with this case, what do you think is the ultimate goal for the group at this point for, for Finley Creek Jane Doe? I know it sounds like not so much about finding her killer as much in this case. Right. I think, uh, I think for a whole, uh, it is just to be able to identify her. Um, it would be nice to know her story. Yeah. And if we can't identify her, 
you know, God willing, we can find her cremains, um, which we've hit roadblock after roadblock, but um, just identifying her, putting a name to her beautiful, beautiful face that Anthony gave us would be wonderful. That's what I'm here for. Yeah. So is there any thoughts as to who she may have been in life? I know it doesn't sound like she may have been from the area. That was something I kind of kept seeing in a lot of the research I was doing. Right. Well, you know, living in Eastern Oregon for most of my life, I mean, I was born and raised here as Mel was, we're very tight. I mean, our communities are very tight. So if one of us goes missing, it's not going to be, you know, swept underneath the rug. It, it, you, it, you're you going to be out there. People are going to know your community is going to know. Absolutely. And so that is what I hinge on uh, believing is she was not a resident. Um, so that makes sense. Yeah. Where we live, you know, up in Vermont, it's the same way. It's very small community. Yeah. If you're not from those types of areas, it may seem kind of strange, but (laughs) everybody, it's a running joke here. Everybody knows everybody, even if it's like six pounds over. So, and I think it was way more so back in the seventies. It was, you really knew everybody. Smaller populations. Yes. Yes. You know, I know you mentioned that being able to utilize those old photos or images of her were kind of like the only thing you all had to work on. Um, what about old newspaper articles? How much was there yeah. written on her? So uh, from what I gathered uh, in my research, uh, there was only a few newspaper articles and from 1978 that I was able to unearth. And uh, that was actually thanks to the archives, uh, people over at Eastern Oregon University who maintain uh, the old newspapers out that way. Uh, she was able to give me four different articles about the Finley Creek Jane Doe. And what I also found out that was unique about this whole situation was that there had been another woman that went missing in Wallowa County about the same time frame. And I researched her case as well. Her name was Emma Mae Ferrin. And I was able to dig a little bit about her. I, I'm still unsure if they ever found her, but they decided to rule her out because Miss Ferrance was a 77-year-old woman, whereas this was someone in her late teens, early 20s. And, uh, and there was a great deal of information, including that cable that was found at the crime scene that D.A. Mammon was able to talk about in the paper. But pretty much after that last bit of information talking about the court and everything and the size of the grave, there was nothing else on Finley Creek Jane Doe until Mel came forward with uh, the newspaper out there. So she didn't get much coverage even back then when she first was found. Right. Exactly. Done. Yeah, I was looking through and I didn't see much. You know, a lot of times you can find old articles, things like that. I didn't, other than what you all had, had provided and found, I didn't see much either. So. Yeah. Right. And back in the 70s, it wasn't a big ticket item in Eastern Oregon. It just... Oh didn't happen. So I know that, you know, the newspapers plus the investigators, it just wasn't a normal occurrence. Right. So, you know, you had a bunch of people, you know, trying to do their best, I'm sure, but just didn't know. Yeah. You know, absolutely. What are some of the benefits that you have all found by having this task force in regards to this sharing of information and putting the case together? I think one of the biggest things that have come out of this for me is making the connections that I've been needing to make, like with Dr. Vance and uh, with other law enforcement officials, uh, not only just in Oregon, but also in Florida 
and across the country as well. This has definitely helped me in my research because I'm part of an organization that's endorsed by the medical examiners, as well at least Dr. Vance anyway. Uh, and that kind of helps me with other cases as well that I'm researching. It gives me the clout, if you will. Yeah. But at the same time, too, the biggest advantage is being able to get comfortable with Dr. Vance and her staff uh, be able to comfortably talk about the case without having to, you know, hold back any information from us and stuff like that. Right. Uh, and in fact, you know, Dr. Vance, as we talked about earlier, she's encouraged it, uh, our work that we've done and the stuff that we're doing to make this case even more solvable. So I think that's been one of the biggest advantages, at least for me, has been making these connections that I feel myself and others in this group have been needing to make for a long time. That's amazing. Yeah, I would totally agree with that. I've met so many people, including, you know, people like you. I've gotten to actually meet Jason in person and take him out to the recovery site. I met Kathy. She and I work for the same agency and I'd never met her before. So (laughs) that was pretty awesome. But I think the biggest thing is the fact that we have had more activity on this case in the past year than in the past 30. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's pretty amazing. If you think about it, so many people are talking about her. They, they know about her every time I do a post because I, I actually pay for ads. So I put my own money into spreading Mm -hmm. these ads out when I post them on Facebook and on Instagram And that's when we get the activity. That's when we get people diving into databases and looking up. I've had tips from Canada. Yeah. Yeah. Like, could this be so-and-so from British Columbia? And it's, it's amazing. So I could be from anywhere. Yeah, yeah, exactly. In the seventies hitchhiking. Are you kidding me? Yeah. She could be from anywhere. Yeah. It's true. Interesting too that you mentioned that like, you know, she like you're getting hits from Canada. It isn't shocking to think that she isn't from the Oregon area. She is actually from more than likely from a different state. She could mm-hmm. be a runaway. She could be any of these situations, especially if she was a young mom in the 70s. Mm-hmm. There's a whole story behind who she was. So mm-hmm. far and wide yeah. is the the way to go with that because she could be she could be from Florida. She could be from uh-huh. up this way. Oh easily. Yep. Yeah. And she wasn't going to a wayward home for pregnant teenagers in LG. No. They'd never had anything like that. She traveled to that region for something with someone. Right. Very specific. Mm-hmm. Or just was hitching through on her way somewhere else, you know, mm-hmm. but it wasn't for care because they're just, there's just not anything there. Do you all have working theories as to what happened? Cause clearly whoever did this had the intention because right. there was the grave was dug, the radio antenna cable. So do you have any like working theories or? I feel like, and this is strictly coming from my lens of I, my background is social work. And I feel like this was potentially a domestic violence situation and maybe they had an argument that radio cable to me is something my dad had in his pickup the entire time I was growing up. You know, it's three feet long. It's within reach. Yep. You get in an argument and now it's like, oh no, I just messed up big time. I need to figure out what to do. 
So that that comes to my mind immediately. And, and I definitely agree with Mel's theory that this could have been a domestic assault case uh, that went really sour. Uh, another thing that kind of strikes me, too, is that because of the location she was found at, my gut feeling is telling me that whoever killed this woman was not only just local, but someone who had to have very good familiarity with that area because not just anyone would pick that spot, not no truck driver that was just coming through mm-hmm. and thought, oh, I'm yeah. disposed of sucker on the way. Right. You know, this this was a place someone had to know. This was so dang secluded. Like someone had to know of this spot. It would had to been someone from Union County or Baker County or or Wallowa County. Someone in that area knows something. Yeah, absolutely. I think that was one of the things. It's funny that that is you all's working theory. I have a completely different opinion on this personally. I do not think it was a domestic violence situation. I do believe that whoever perpetrated the crime had to have been local based on the location. However, considering no one in the area seems to recognize her from the forensic art and no one seems to recall anyone missing, I think perhaps she was a hitchhiker from somewhere else. She probably left home because she was pregnant and was picked up by someone local. Right. Yeah, that's likely too. Yeah, they both are very good theories. I know I saw thoughts of serial killer behavior. Did this ever strike you all? I mean, you've been very involved with this case. Is that <laughs> something that ever really kind of hit with you or no? Well, I know that Mel had conversations, but I'll let Mel answer that question. Uh, <laughs> um, well, of course, later in the 80s, as the Green River cases came yeah. out, the investigators talked about that. That doesn't strike me as a Gary Ridgeway case, personally. Ted Bundy's been thrown out there, of course, because he may have or may not have put a toe into Oregon at one point. Uh, that doesn't hold much water for me either. It's just, I mean, it's, and it's totally my own opinion, Right. but, um, we, we've actually been sort of kind of looking into a gentleman who his name was Harry Hantman. And he was actually convicted of killing a girl, a little girl in Washington, DC, in the 70s and yeah and he escaped from the mental health facility that he was in and lived in Wallowa County where Kathy is right now for 20 years oh wow so he was familiar with the area he was and he was eventually caught by the U.S. Marshals in 1994 95 and I've been trying to find a trace of him. He was living under an assumed name. He assumed the name of somebody who passed away from cancer in the 70s. And as soon as he was caught, almost immediately after he was caught, and we didn't find this out until later, he killed himself in the penitentiary. And so he never, he, in fact, ladies, this is really going to kill you. He was convicted of rape under his alias and went to prison and they did not figure out who he was until after he had served a sentence for that that gives me chills that's crazy that's scary yes isn't that nuts so he's one that i've been trying to kind of backtrack about because it's possible you know that he perpetrated this crime i you know picked up a hitchhiker and all that kind of stuff. Um, And I was actually in contact with the U.S. Marshal at one point who did 
that investigation and had been up to his property up there. And he said, your email stopped me in my tracks because he had all this radio equipment up there. Um, and then I haven't been able to get a hold of the marshal again since that conversation. So, but okay. you know, it's a theory. Wow. His home up here is very fortified. It's like a fortress. Yep. Wow. It's uh, kind of very spooky. I have friends uh, and acquaintances that live here in Malau County still that knew him, that knew his wife or that still know his wife. Wow. Uh, so yeah, we've, we've had several conversations back and forth, Mel and I, about this gentleman uh, because it's, if he was attending Eastern Oregon University, to get from Joseph or Imnaha, Oregon, you have to pass through Elgin to get there. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. That makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. He's so hard to track because he has the two different aliases. Although I did get his records from Eastern Oregon University. Right. And he took a typing class, just in case you're curious. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> wow. But yeah, just to kind of track his timeline, but you know, he's dead. Yeah. And I, I just, we would have to have something pretty substantial to maybe pass on to a trooper or somebody to say, um, right. could you go press his wife a little bit and yeah. find out more about what he was doing? Right. I have found her and I so want to, I, I have mentioned using a, an x-ray machine on a foundation of a home that they built in the seventies while they were yeah. up here. Uh, to see what's hidden in the foundation. Right. You know, yeah. simply, I've, I've just, I'm so curious. I, it's hard. But, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's a hard thing about the private property. <laughs> it's like, oh, man. Yep. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, yeah, and so some of the other things, too. I mean, you guys have put this task force together fairly quickly, actually, in the last couple of years. Um what would be your advice to other folks out there who want to help do something like what you guys have put together and want to help contribute to Jane and John Doe cases and, and try to get these solved? What would your suggestions or advice be to them? Don't be shy. <laughs> That's good advice. I'll chime in here and just say that, um, yeah, absolutely. Don't be shy. Don't be shy. Everyone has something to contribute. Yep. Yep. Everyone has something to contribute to, um, the cold case research if they feel compelled to do so people from all backgrounds can contribute something like uh, i got my start doing art and writing and i find yeah. myself referencing my experiences doing that and what i'm doing now um the people who do data analysis people who are just really solid researchers mm -hmm. obviously we need as as many forensic genetic genealogists as we can get but that requires having dna um People who are on social media and have any sort of following just make posts, get them mm -hmm. get shared. Um, mm -hmm. And people from every background have something they can contribute to this because everybody has a different way of looking at a problem. Yep. That's right. That's amazing. And I'm, I'm thankful that uh, Jason and Mel were so receptive. I just started shooting questions at them. Yep. Hey, I didn't know about this. Did you know? this did you notice that what about this what about that i live here i was reading the police report and they were talking about bear creek in wallowa county well i live on bear creek in wallowa county right you know i mean i was just like 
oh my goodness. And they were so willing to say, Hey, would you like to join our group? I'm like, heck yes. So, you know, be curious Yep. from my standpoint, ask questions. Don't be shy. Right. But Mel and Jason really were very, and, and Anthony, they were all there before me. You know, they were so welcoming and saying, Hey, you know, she's looking at things that a different way than maybe we did. Right. And so you have to be receptive of an offer of help as well. I right. feel. Absolutely. And any idea that you have is not going to be so far-fetched that it's not possible. It does not hurt to shoot an email or make a phone call. I've talked to detectives in San Bernardino. I've talked to reporters. I've talked to just to say, Hey, I heard this thing on your podcast let me run this idea by you. Mm -hmm. And what I found is although you might be shy and uncertain and, Oh, maybe they don't want to talk to me. What I've found is 99.9% of the time is people are open. They are receptive. They do want to help. Even if all it is, is returning an email. That's so true. Yeah. And it's just, don't, don't be shy. Just do it. Just put it. All they can do is ignore your email or just tell you, no, thanks. I don't, I don't want to talk to you. And then you move on to the next thing. Or make phone calls. We, Mel and I worked on a list of the people that lived in the vicinity of where our Jane Doe was found. And we just, I just found numbers. I researched people over the internet, found if they were still living there or not. And we just started calling people, you know, it's awesome. So what are your hopes for the case just in meeting with us today and, and chatting with us for this interview, but just in general, um, you know, with the Facebook group, I know solving her, her name, um, what else are you looking for? What can our listeners be doing to help out? Well, for me, it's been about the awareness all along. Uh, I, I really want people to understand this case, to get to know this case more. Um, maybe perhaps there's people like Mel and I and Kathy and Anthony uh, who are very interested in, in other cases like this uh, that want to put their foot forward and get some kind of inspiration out of this. And, um, and, and at the end of the day, it's all about awareness and also making sure that she is identified one day, whether it be through, you know, if we can find her remains at some point. Uh, you know, yeah. getting it from DNA or otherwise. But in the meantime, it's it's awareness and doing what I can to help aid in her identification. That's yeah. Amazing. yeah, absolutely. That's absolutely right. I, I feel like, and maybe it's because I'm from here or I'm a mom or whatever it might be, I feel like when murders like this happen, there's been a hole that's been ripped in the fabric of the community and the universe because... I was on a walk one day and it came to me that that baby could have been born the same time as me. I could have gone to high school with that baby, you know? And to me, it just, it makes me angry. So it's a little bit about reparation too, making things right. And she totally deserves her name. That baby deserves a name. Absolutely. And that's, that's what we're here for. Absolutely. hundred percent, hundred percent. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Something that I think that people can contribute to this case and others is if you're not local to the Oregon area, um, just talk to your local department, your local medical examiner's office, um, your, your local missing persons clearinghouse, and make sure that they're entering all of their old cold cases into NamUs. Mm. 
to the Charlie Project, um, make sure they're getting into a national database for comparison. Yeah. Because if there are people who are from other states or other counties, they may not be compared outside of that county or that state. And I think that's a huge key to getting more cold cases resolved. Yeah. And I think it needs to be put out there that um, I, I had been watching a, a Dateline and a, a gal had uh, disappeared and she was missing for over 30 or 40 years uh, and nobody ever, her father did not file a missing persons report. So if that was one case, you know that there's probably a thousand more of those from the 70s. Yep throughout the US. And I think it's so important that uh, we can raise some awareness to have people, you know, geez, you know, Martha disappeared in 1975. We never heard from her again, but we, we never filed that police right. report. Mm -hmm. Right. And so we have to raise awareness for that as well. Yeah, that's so true. Mm -hmm. I'd, I'd like to add something to that that's really important to mention. And this is a message for people who are missing people, people who are doing research on cold cases. Um, when a person goes missing and their family reports the missing, the way that those missing person reports are filed and handled is different from agency to agency. Some people think that they filed a missing persons report and it actually hasn't mm -hmm. been put into the system. If someone is missing someone from decades ago and they're not being looked at, they should check with the department and make sure that the case is even in their system and being looked at appropriately. There are cold case detectives who are very willing to pick up old cases that haven't been looked mm -hmm. at yeah. or haven't been properly entered into the system and give those renewed hope. Um, likewise, if you're a researcher, if you are a casual detective on the internet, um, mm. please be aware that if somebody is identified and their family supposedly had not reported the missing, that's not necessarily the fault of the family. No. They may have thought that they filed a report. And right. So please do not be cruel to families yeah. of missing people no. because they haven't filed the report. Just raise the yeah. that maybe they should. Yeah. And I'll also add to, uh, following what Anthony just said, uh, Recently, I actually came across something very similar to that, which actually ended up uh, uh, resulted in an identification uh, a couple of months ago in Lake City, Florida. So I had submitted some potential matches for a uh, missing woman in Lake City, Florida from 1988. Uh, and there was a set of remains that was found outside of Lake City in 2003. And what had happened was that they had not done a DNA extraction on these skeletal remains. And they did not find out about this until early last year when I submitted these potential matches. And what happened was, was that originally the profile for these skeletal remains was that it was a, an African-American woman in her 30s. However, when the DNA came back, they realized this was actually a white male. Oh, wow. And oh. Uh, that actually resulted in the identification of Keith Bamford. Uh, a man who went missing out of Stark, Florida in 1996. Oh, wow. uh, he had left the behavioral center that he was staying at uh, and was going to walk back to Stark from Lake City, which is about a 45-minute drive in a vehicle. So imagine the, the walk he would have taken. But somehow he was killed in between. And, uh, yeah, they, they just identified him, even though these remains were sitting in a box for Lord knows how long, wow. and they were misprofiled. So it happens. Yeah, I was glad that they were able to figure that one out. <laughs> That's amazing. 
That's absolutely not uncommon. I have actually worked on a forensic genetic genealogy case of an individual who was misidentified as their, their original sex estimation was done by the coroner who was not necessarily qualified to do that. And it was also the late 70s. And they were given a sex estimation of female based on the size of their hands. Oh, but this was, a, this was a completely average cisgender male uh, who we then later identified. This is not an uncommon occurrence. Um, ethnicity estimates are often right. off in one direction or another. Um, Asian and uh, African ethnicities are, are sometimes uh, swapped in the system because of the, the bone markers. Right. Um, and they should always be re-looked at every now and again when new technology arises and new data comes up. Right. So absolutely, um, when you're making comparisons, make sure mm-hmm. that you're aware that they can be a little fuzzy. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's a very good point. So yeah, it is amazing what you all have done. I, I have to ask, if you end up solving who Finley Creek Jane Doe is, what are the plans for the task force after that? Is it going to disband or do you think you would maybe pick up another case well uh, jason obviously is already doing other cases he's been doing it for a while yeah. <laughs> i actually have two other cases that i'm working on at the same time one is a missing woman from here in Legrand, and the other one is an unsolved murder out of lacey washington that i actually attended the crowd solve event. I don't know if y'all heard about that, but CrimeCon put on a crowd solve event in Seattle, Washington last year. So Karen Bodine, I've become really good friends with her daughter, Carly, and have actually taken a lot of the things that I've learned from the Spindley Creek Jane Doe campaign. And I'm helping Carly with that. That's amazing. Yeah. And the daughter of the missing woman doing the same thing with her. So uh, I have other projects that I'm going to work on and I'm sure we'll keep in touch because Jason, Anthony, Kathy, they're, they're way too good at contacts and resources <laughs> to not have them in, in my life. You know what I mean? Absolutely. So She said it perfectly. I mean, we'll definitely stay in contact. I don't think this is the end of the road for any of us, especially Anthony nope. over there with his uh, briefcase full of cases. So. <laughs> <laughs> well, and you can always let us know if you ever want us to highlight something. We're always happy to. Awesome. That's so great. Thank you. And speaking on that note, hang tight and I'll talk to you about that one case. Definitely. So I just wanted to add that if this case gets, if and when this case gets solved and also any future cases that this team ever works on in the future, I'm, I'm here for it. If there's DNA, I'll help with the forensic genetic genealogy. If there's postmortem photos or photos of remains, I'll do art. Y'all are so dedicated to everything that you're doing. And anything that I can contribute, I will be more than happy to. Um, it helps case. It, it helps me. The more experience I have, the better I'll be at helping other people. So yeah, correct. absolutely. And it's amazing the work that every one of you have done for this case. It really, truly, truly is. I mean, we were we were so impressed. It's not often we see a case this detailed. This to see her face too was just. Oof. That was hard. We we were so nervous all week to meet with you guys because we were. we're like, oh my god, this is like the A team. Like, <laughs> yeah, like we were so excited <laughs> that we were so genuinely touched that you were willing to even let us talk about her case and and Absolutely. be a part of this. So the more exposure we can get, the more help. Yeah, yeah. Um, Maybe one of these days we'll get her name. You will. 
I have no doubts. Yep. You are amazing folk and the dedication you have put to her case. And the most important thing to note too is you have all volunteered your time. This is not something you are paid to do. No. This is something that you have dedicated your extra time to to helping this woman's cause. So that's just something that Ash and I want to really point out. Like you guys are doing this from the bottom of your hearts and from the good place in your hearts. And it's amazing to see how communities can come together from that, from a really strong place. Absolutely. Yep. And I I have no doubts. I think y'all are going to solve it this year. I think you're going to come close. <laughs> I feel good about it. Oh, yeah. yeah clearly. I love your enthusiasm. I feel it. <laughs> yes, absolutely. <laughs> I, I wouldn't be surprised. We're seeing it happen every day. So yeah. I know her name's going to be out there in no time at all. I really yeah. do. Thank you. Thank you so much. And for, of course. So definitely stay in touch with us. The one thing I want to add, uh, throw out, if you all want to share your socials to our listeners, if they want to participate, they want to follow the updates on the case, um, or even just help with suggestions or connecting you with more folks, where can they reach out to you? The Facebook page is Finley Creek Jane Doe dash Elgin, Oregon. It's a long and it's a mouthful, but it's very clear who it is when you look <laughs> Absolutely. it up. So both Facebook and Instagram are named that. And then I believe Jason, the website is just Finley Creek Jane Doe.com. All one word. Yeah. So it's uh, Finley Creek Jane Doe dot Weebly.com. Uh, Weebly is W-E-E-B-L-Y. Absolutely. Uh, We also have an email that people can reach out to us at other than uh, the Facebook page or the website, which we also have a contact form. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's going to be Family Creek Jane Doe TF, T as in Tom, F as in Force, at gmail.com. And uh, I occasionally will check that email, and then I usually forward any tips to Mel or whoever uh, if it's pretty decent. That's great. Mm -hmm. And we will share all of that on our socials as well for you all and in our show notes. um, So that way people can just click. And so we just want to thank you all so, so much for taking the time to chat with us. You know, this is not the first conversation. That's what I always say. Um, You know, (laughs) our door is always open. So anything you have, any updates, you know, I cannot wait to chat with you guys and hear more about what you've just uncovered over this next year. So, oh, yeah. We really genuinely cherish every single one of you taking the time to chat with us today. We really do. Oh, yes. Thank you. Bottom of our hearts. Thank you so much. And thank you for everything you guys have done. Anthony, Kathy, Jason, Mel, you all really are admirable. This is not an easy feat that you've all chosen to take on. The fact that you are volunteering to do this, you know, I know that this woman would appreciate it. So you guys are amazing for doing this and you know, anything we can all help do to help you let us know. Thanks so much. Thank you. Well, we are happy to do it. And we are so excited to talk to you all today. You don't even know. Oh, thank you. Thank you. We were definitely fangirling. We we're like, oh my yeah, God. We, were. <laughs> we definitely were. We were like, oh my gosh, we haven't actually had like actual like researchers other than us on here. <laughs> so um, it's really nice to to see other folks who have a passion about solving these cases. Mm-hmm. A lot mm-hmm. of people want the sensational cases. That's not us. Um, we like the unsolved. So they deserve their names to be known. Yeah, that's my ideal too. It's like for my for my podcast too. It's like you know I don't want to be covering sensational cases or cases everyone's heard of before. Could I just be another voice in the yeah. crowd? Instead, I want to stand out mm-hmm. and share the cases of these people who 
did not get that same opportunity yep. that John Bonet or the Thurman's got. That's us too. And yeah, we also like to also kind of counteract the like fan the fan base for serial killers and all of that stuff we don't yeah like that um (laughs) you know that's a big thing unfortunately in the in the true crime world so you know we we really want to highlight that these were victims and their stories are more far more important than these monsters that's our big thing so the work that you all do is all about highlighting a victim it's not about who killed her no and so that's the thing that really got us too. So mm-hmm. bottom of our hearts, we thank you all. <laughs> yes, thank, thank you so much. You. Thank you. Keep up thank your you. good work too. You guys do amazing work. Yeah. Thank you. Absolutely. Aww, thank you. <laughs> we appreciate that. So and yeah, hit us up when you need anything. So we're here. We've always got a plan. We will do oh, that. Thank we will you. do that. Absolutely. Telling us that. Nope, not at all. <laughs> Bring them on. <laughs> <laughs> And with that, nerdlings, we conclude the case of the Finley Creek Jane Doe. Thank you to each and every member of the Finley Creek Task Force for taking this case on and working each and every day to try and find out just who this young woman was. Please go check out the Facebook page and website for the Finley Creek Jane Doe, as the task force has worked intensively on making sure Finley Creek Jane Doe is never forgotten. We will put the links to their website and Facebook page on our socials as well as in the show notes for this episode. Thank you everyone for helping to spread the word on this case and let's help the task force get more answers as to just who Finley Creek Jane Doe was. And if you liked this episode, feel free to leave us a review on iTunes or your preferred podcast subscriber. You can also hit us up on our Instagram at crimetimenerds or check out our case notes at crimetimenerds.com where we post references and photos of all of our cases. We also have a Twitter account, which is at CrimetimeNerds, and an email you can reach us at, which is crimetimenerds at gmail.com. Until next time, you crime-loving nerds. <laughs>